The Hokkaidoi Breakfast Show with Connor Kitto Podcast. Mike King, good morning. Good morning, brother. How are you? I'm doing really well, thank you. This this week has been uh, relatively interesting, actually. I'm living in a rather rural kind of community, and we've seen some statistics come out recently about rural communities and the mental health that farmers are struggling with right now, a lot of the pressure. I wanted to ask you first and foremost about anxiety because you yourself have dealt with this firsthand and I'm sure that farmers probably have some sort of level of anxiety when it comes down to all the pressures that are mounted upon them, Uh, they don't feel like they're meeting expectations. I guess from your point of view, how did you get past that or are you still dealing with it today? Oh look, let's let's start at the beginning, right? So um, you you actually answered your own question um, in the question, funnily (laughs) enough, so... um, at the moment in mental health, we always deal uh, we deal with behaviours and we uh, deal with crisis. So when you ask a, a mental health professional, you know, and, and most of the general public, what is the biggest problem in mental health today? They will say depression and anxiety. Depression and anxiety are actually uh, a result of the problem. Um, and by focusing on the crisis part, it's kind of like... Um, it's focusing on the results of the flu, not why are we always getting the flu in mm. the first place. So the biggest problem in mental health today um, isn't depression, it isn't anxiety, it isn't any of those other uh, diagnoses, although you know, they, they, you know, they are an issue. The biggest problem in mental health today is an overactive inner critic. Um, you know, those little conversations that we have with ourselves, uh, you know, those little things um, that, where we second-guess ourselves. You know, the inner critic is the biggest problem in mental health. You know, that's that little voice that, that has you overthinking the things that you do say and see throughout the day. And we all, we all live with that anxiety. We all live with that worry. Did I do the right thing? Did I do the right thing? Did mm-hmm. I do the right mm-hmm. thing? Is is Barry looking at me sideways? I think Barry's looking at me sideways. Do you, you know what I mean? Yes. So yeah, we're I do. overthinking everything at the moment, and the reason why overthinking and our inner critic is getting on top of us, because when you when you couple that thought pattern with natural human behavior today, and natural human behavior today is we've all got to put on our stoic face, we've all got to put on our happy face and pretend like we've got our shit together. Um, The number one rule in mental health, the number one rule is no one has got it together. No one. The two... um, the two people that that are running this country at the moment um, are Jacinda Ardern and um, and Ashley Bloomfield. You know they come across as cool, calm, collected, leading the country, but they don't go to bed at night without without shedding a tear and overthinking the things that they've told the New Zealand public to do. Right. Crushy Collins, old Judas, she's a good friend of mine, you know, and she's a super staunch lady. But there is no way in hell that she doesn't go to bed at night second guessing herself. Um, so we're all living in a society where we're expected to put on our perfect mask, and this is particularly true in rural areas where mm. where our farmers have been the backbone of our economy forever. And uh, you know, let's be let's be brutally honest there uh, that you know they are getting a ton of shit um, from the government and their farming practices, and and they're overthinking the future right now as well, right? They're thinking. Um, you know, uh, what is this going to mean to the sustainability of my business if I have mm. to meet all of these these um, 
these carbon emission rules. All of these things are coming into play. Right. And when stuff like this happens, we don't, you know, we go straight to DEFCON 100. You know, we don't think of a little problem a little way ahead. We just go straight to worst-case scenario. Mm. And that is just putting huge pressure on everybody. But what, we, but, but what most people don't realize is that everyone is going through the same thing. And there's great comfort in knowing that everyone else struggles. Um, I'll give you a classic example. Uh, we had a, um, we had suicide figures come out this year, and we had a drop for the very first time in yeah. five years. And straight away, all of our experts jumped in and said what they always say when the numbers come down, which is, well, you know, it uh, shows we're tracking in the right direction. Obviously, there's still a lot of work to do, and we can't get complacent. Mm. But Yahoo, good, good, good for us. Um, when the numbers uh, go up again next year, what they'll come out with is, oh, well, you know, it's an impulsive act. It's an impulsive act, and, you know, if someone wants to take their own life, they can. Bottom line is this. The reason our numbers came down this year, um, and you can link this to the Christchurch earthquake as well, uh, is because everyone was being vulnerable, right? COVID had more to do with the numbers coming down, than, in my opinion, than any of the work that we've been doing in this space. Why? Okay. Because with COVID, everyone started making themselves more vulnerable, right? We were all talking about our vulnerability. We were talking about our jobs. We were talking about our kids' education. We were talking about our livelihoods. So everyone had taken off their masks, and we were worrying now. Before the Canterbury earthquakes in 2011, they had the highest suicide rate in New Zealand. Okay. So guess what happened? Guess what happened after the uh, after the earthquake? For the next two years, the numbers dropped significantly in that region. Two years on, the numbers started climbing again, and now Canterbury's back to being, uh, you know, the suicide region of New Zealand. But our experts automatically turn around and have said, "Oh, well, that's a result of the earthquake, is it?" Is it? Because when the earthquake happened and everyone was vulnerable and we're all fighting for our city together, yeah. the numbers came down. It was only when the money came back in and everyone got on with their, their lives and, 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 and started pushing people away again. I don't need you around here anymore. Come on, like I'm back making money yeah. and I'm putting back on my mask of invincibility that things change. So for me, anxiety is when when you you know when you worry so much about the future that you overthink it until it, you know it becomes absolutely depressing. Um, so for for me, when it comes to um, when it comes to anxiety, for me, I always think worst case scenario. What's the worst thing that could happen? Uh, and work backwards from there. So if you're a farmer, you know it becomes it becomes you know, inconceivable uh, that I can carry on, I'll probably lose the farm. That's the absolute worst-case scenario, right? Mm, yeah. But then you... Okay, so that's the worst thing that could happen. What's the best thing that could happen? Okay, well, you know, the farm thrives. On, so now we've got the both ends of the spectrum on the table. Now, nine out of ten times, somewhere in the middle lies the answer. Now... One of the things that I always fall back on, and this is this is my go-to get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, this year, COVID 
I had a bike accident at the beginning of the year. Yep. Then COVID came along. Uh, I've had about five talks this year. I've got all the bank loans that I can handle. I've got personal loans from friends. Um, you know, companies have started back up again, but the work's slow to come in because I've got to build up their banks again and they've got to pay debt. So there's no work around, right? Yeah. Uh, and there's nothing that I can do about that. Now, I could sit there and go, well, I could lose my house. I could lose my, you know, I, I, I could lose everything I've got. But on the other side of that coin, my family's safe, my kids are safe, you know, and, and uh, so many times I hear people who have lost their children say, I would give it all away to have that child back. Well, what's more yeah. important? Do you see what I mean? So one's, you know, sure, one's material, but what's the worst thing that could happen? I'm out of a job. You know, I have to go on to some kind of uh, wage support or I have to jump off this pedestal and go down a couple of pedestals. Um, I've done it a couple of times in my life, um, had to drop down, but it's just an opportunity to grow. So the only thing that has to change is how you think about stuff. When it gets to a certain point, I can uh, believe that some people might think that they're past the point of return where they're they're so deep in that dark place that actually focusing on the positives doesn't, Work is yeah. it just a case? No, no. I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you said that. We've just published our um, 1,000 letters report where we asked the country to send in uh, if they had any, you know, uh, letters that left behind by people who had uh, taken their own lives. Right. And, yeah. Uh, a couple of the most important findings that that we had in there was, you know, for most people who look normal on the outside and, you know, were putting on this brave face for the world, had ongoing problems, exactly like you've said. You know, it's been going on and on and on, uh, and I can't take it anymore. Um, So there definitely needs to be uh, uh, earlier intervention. So for most of these people, they didn't just have problems. It wasn't uh, an impulsive act like we think it is. It is, uh, you know, for a lot of these people, it was a build-up of issues uh, over a long period of time. And I'm not talking about months or weeks uh, or years. In some cases, it was decades. Uh, other little wee things that we found, one of the big things that, you know, that, that, that we are taught um, is to give as much love as you can to a person because they're not loving themselves. So you can throw, throw as much love as you can at them while our study shows that, you know, um, most of the people that took their own lives knew that they were loved. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, it kept them around, but love was not enough. Um, so, you know, it all points back to earlier intervention. For a lot of them, they kept getting told that help was there, but they either couldn't find it or got turned away. So at the moment, in our mental health system, we currently fund crisis. In other words, you have to reach a certain point, breaking point, uh, as you just uh, you just alluded to, mm. before you can get the care that you need. Well, you know, if you keep funding crisis, all you're going to get is crisis, and people yeah. are going to get overwhelmed. So that we definitely need to move in a different direction. Now, last year the government um. Uh, put up $1.9 billion uh, towards mental health. Um, and they've made a, the Ministry of Health have made a series of, of announcements, but no one knows where that money's gone and where is this early intervention that they keep talking about. Um, and their early intervention system right now is an app. 
Well, a nap is good for someone who's got a cold, but someone who's got pneumonia, they're not going anywhere near it, so we need to do better. I actually heard Robin Shearer, who's the Deputy General of the Ministry of Health, and uh, Ashley Bloomfield, and when she was asked about this self-same question, her response was, well, you know, if you're overwhelmed by stuff, if you're overwhelmed by news and, you know, all the news that's coming in is bad, turn it off and listen to us, listen to some music. I'm like, are you shitting me, lady? Seriously, that's your solution? Go tell that to our farmers who are struggling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess when you when you hear experts say, and, and we see certain statistics change and chop, and we see one year it goes down, and then it goes back up again, and they have all these excuses, what do you think to yourself? Do you think, well, what qualifications do these people have? Have they been in this position? And what can you imagine what the people who are dealing with this kind of uh, mental illness are thinking as well? Like, I mean... Okay. I, well, I, I, look, I, I, I don't want to, uh, like... To, to to bag our academics of course. and clinicians. Of course. Um, they do the best that they can. So our current system is um, is built on um, risk management. So you've got a really simple idea to do something, right? Just for example, a real simple idea is Mike King goes into schools. He's had a lived experience. It seems to be really resonating with the kids. Why don't we get more Mike Kings with that same experience and put them in schools? Then the Ministry of Health comes along and goes, you know, sure, Mike's okay, but you can't have crazy people going to schools. They might kill everybody. <laughs> so then we've got to put in, you know, so something that is a simple idea becomes uh, unyieldy and and impossible to pay for uh, and fiscally irresponsible. Now, the big problem that I have, and I just said I'm not going to bag them, and I'm not bagging of course. them. This is, a, this is an observation. So there's three cogs in the machine of mental health right now, right? So there's the academics who do all the study and all the evidence-based reports uh, to make sure it's as safe as possible. Then you've got the clinical teams, the clinicians who come in and they're going to, to, to put this stuff forward, right? So those two cogs are, are in sync, they're, you know, they're churning, uh, they're like a Swiss watch. But the third cog in this wheel is the people, and we are... We are pushed push so far out to the right that we're not we're not connected, we're not engaged, mm. and this is you know the, uh, the academics and the clinicians need to get the people more involved. Um, the people went out and did the thousand letters report, and they're refusing to even look at it because, like a naughty child, um, I didn't get ethics committee approval, despite the fact that you know our lawyers <laughs> our lawyers. Um, uh, confirmed that we didn't need their approval in the yeah. first place for the type of study that we did. But it's like, you know, uh, you're a naughty boy. You know, sure, your invention could save lives, son, but we told you you can't do it. So we don't care about it. We're not even looking yeah. at it. So it's it's, it's extremely, extremely um, um, frustrating. Now, the other thing, you know, some, so some of the evidence-based stuff that they're coming up with, for example, is, you know... Um, reach out and ask for help, you know, help's available, it's okay, you know, to to be not okay, all of this, you know, in my eyes, rubbish. It's rubbish. So I've travelled on the road now for the last six and a half years and spoken to over, um, well over a quarter of a million people face-to-face, right? Here's what I know. 80% of people who are in crisis 
in major crisis, whether that's, you know, badly depressed, anxious or suicidal, never ask for help ever. Never ask for help. Of course not. And when when you ask them why you don't ask for help, the answer is simple. I'm worried about what you're going to think. I'm worried about what you're going to say. I'm worried about what you're going to do with that information. In other words, they're worried about society, all the stigma. What's going to happen? Am I going to be name-called? How big is this? Well, it's huge. How big of a problem? There are people who would rather take their own lives and leave their families behind rather than open up. So 80% of people don't ask for help because they're worried about society will think, say, or do. But here's the rub. What's our message? Hey, if you're struggling, reach out and ask for help. It's an oxymoron. Like, I've just told you I'm scared of sharks, and your solution is go swim with sharks, and you might find help. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. So the first thing that has to happen, which is the area that we work in, is positive societal attitude and all change. We have to remove the stigma from mental health and make it safer for people to reach out and ask for help. Now, a classic example of this in in physical health, 20 years ago, only footy players and, um, you know, and bodybuilders went to the gym, right? Mm. Uh, And you went there because you were vain and building up your muscles or or you're a footy player, right? (laughs) Nowadays, there's all shapes and sizes go to the gym because we're proactive about our physical health. 20 years ago, you could not get a man to the doctor to have a digit shoved up his private parts to check for cancer because there was stigma. Now, it's natural for all blokes to go in over 50 years old and have right. a prostate test because we shifted our thinking. So if we could shift our thinking for something like someone sticking their finger up your butt, then it's going to be an easy shift to... to um, to change how we think about mental health. So how do we have a mental health conversation? I think this is the first thing that we need to be talking. So the biggest problem in, in mental health today is an overactive inner critic. You know, that, that, that constantly putting yourself down, I'm not good enough. Someone gives you a compliment about a paint job you've done and all you're thinking is, yeah, but I didn't cut it in properly over there. The cut so much over there. You know, I should have sanded that back better. You know, it's a crap paint job. I'm a crap painter. Most of us have that thought. You know, even when we do something well, we're always focusing on the one thing that went wrong, you know. And we, we, we pass this on to our kids. Dad, I scored four tries today. Yes, son. I was at the game. You should have got five. What about that drop pass? So all of this thing. So how do you have a conversation about mental health? Everyone said, well, everyone should open up and talk. But if I go up to you and say, hey, bro, how's your day? And you say to me, oh, please, bro, please sit down. It started in childhood. What happened? Like, you know, no one wants yeah, that conversation, no, right? No, no. It's awkward. It's horrible. You might say something and I might feel like I'm responsible for, for your problem. How, we how do you have a mental health conversation? So we know now that, that uh, the inner critic is the biggest, biggest problem in mental health. So if you come to me and go, hey, Mike, how are you going today? I'm going to say, oh, bro, I'm glad you asked. My inner critic is smashing me today. As soon as I say that to you, now you're going to be curious. Okay, what happened? Well, I, I walked down the hall today, and, you know, I always say hello to Liz. Well, today the bastard just walked straight past me, didn't say anything. Some way in the critics saying, oh, Liz doesn't like you. Liz has never liked you. You're a, 
you're a you're a terrible person, you're a horrible person, and you're beating yourself up. And then, in that situation, your friend might turn around and go, oh, you, you heard Les's uh, boy fell out of the jungle gym yesterday and broke his arm, he might have his mind on something else, and you go, oh, light bulb moment. So in that moment, you might get a reason why this has happened and, and a reason why you're overthinking things, but number two, more importantly, the person that asked that question is now going to go, I've got one of those two. So we need to normalize critical thinking, how we're thinking. And until we do that, you can have the best mental health system in the world. Mm. You can throw a billion dollars a day at it. But until attitudes change, nothing is going to change. So you think this week, it is Mental Health Awareness Week, your message, Mike, and I am Hope's message, Mike, is about how to have that conversation. How to have that conversation. We need to normalise mental health issues. So if I could say one thing to everyone out there, yep. and, and, and I've said, I said it just before, rule number one in mental health, no one has got their shit together. Perfect. No one. And it's something that, you know, we need to normalize so our kids can realize that I'm normal. Anyone who's got, you know, anyone who thinks that they've got it all together, I'm telling you, they're the mentally unwell ones because no one has. You can pretend all you like, but if you think you've got it all together in this crazy world that we live in now, <laughs> my friend, you're the not normal one because the rest of us are as worried as hell. <laughs> Mike King, thank you so much for your time and your wise words this morning. Love you, bro. Thanks, bro. The Hokanui Breakfast with Connor Kitto Podcast.